Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with retired senior U.S. intelligence officers who have great stories to tell. Today, we have a fascinating story about espionage inside the United States. And to help me um, co-host today's session, it's a pleasure to welcome a fellow AFIO board member, John Quatrati. John attended uh, the U.S. Air Force Academy. He is a former special agent and special supervisory agent with the U.S. Uh, FBI. He worked for a number of years in policy uh, development and implementation with the National Security Council, the Office of the DNI and DOD. He worked for a while um, as a vice president and uh, division manager with CACI. And today he is a professor at the, at the Institute of World Politics. John, welcome to AFIO Now. Well, thanks, Jim. I appreciate it. Pete, on behalf of the AFIO membership and our board of directors, I want to thank you for participating in our AFIO Now series and agreeing to share with us your observations with regard to the Ana Montes investigation from your perspective as the case agent. As we discussed before we started the recording, given your amount of time in the Bureau and the status of the Bureau's counterintelligence program when you were assigned this case, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, but before 9-11, I think it's fair to say you probably have some almost singularly unique perspectives with regard to national security and the Bureau's counterintelligence program. But before we get started, let me share your background with our viewers and listeners, and then we'll pick up the case after that. You retired a year ago after 20 plus years in the Bureau, but before joining the Bureau, you were a police officer in Southeastern Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm getting your bachelor's degree in criminal justice at Westchester University, and then a master's degree at St. Joe's in criminal justice. Yeah. Think from my notes, it says you entered on duty in May of 98, and after completing new agent training at Quantico, I guess you made the long trip up I-95 here to Washington field office where you were assigned immediately to the Cuban squad. You can correct me on that, but it appears to be, to me, you went right to the counterintelligence squad, working counterintelligence operations and counterespionage investigations from there. Before we turn to the case, let me close out your career and then we can go back to the Cuban squad at WFO. In 2008, you were then transferred to the Baltimore division, the Wilmington RA resident agency, where again, you worked on counterintelligence matters. And I suspect you came across my old section chief at headquarters, Ray Mislock, while you're working the Gary Min case getting Gary 18 months of room and board courtesy of the Bureau of Prisons for theft of trade secrets under the Economic Espionage Act of 1996. After Wilmington, you were promoted to supervisory special agent at headquarters in Division 5, the Counterintelligence Division. And in May of 2010, you were promoted unit chief of the Counterespionage Section's Economic Espionage Unit, and then the unit chief in PRC matters. After that, it appeared you purpled up your resume a bit by leaving the building and you went out to the DNI as a senior advisor for Homeland Security and law enforcement. Did I leave anything out? No, that's pretty good. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so before we get started, uh, I'd like to tell you and the audience, what I'd like to do is break this down into five parts. First, I want to spend a little time with you on the counterintelligence program you came into, and we can spend a little time there. But as a new agent straight out of Quantico, given the fact that the program was in some considerable flux after the fall of the Soviet Union. And then discuss the first few weeks of the case. How did the case get opened? What did you do initially? Did you know what you had initially? Or did it take a while for it occur to you just how big this was going to become? Then once you identified Montez as your, as your subject, can we discuss what you learned about her? I suspect anticipating you do an interview of her and what you need to know to go to a court or to your supervisors for the further authorities for your counterespionage case. And then once you satisfied the early requirements of the case, I want to discuss the actual facts of the case as you pursued them. And then finally, and I think almost uniquely, peculiarly, uh, we know you resolved the case in the weeks immediately after 9-11. So as we discussed earlier on the call, uh, I'd like you to share with our audience the degree to which 9-11 had an impact, if at all, on your timing of the case. So with that going forward, why don't you go ahead and start and tell me what was uh, the counterintelligence program like at WFO when you came into the Bureau? Was it something you chose or was it a needs of the Bureau assignment that you were unaware of at the time? 
So first of all, John and Jim and Afio, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, I want to clarify something. When I talk about Anamantas, you're going to hear a lot of we. This is a big we case because I have become fortunate to, to in the past 20 years, to become the face of the case. However, this case uh, has a thousand fathers and really not just within the FBI, but the interagency as well deserves a tremendous amount of credit for the fact that she's still in jail 20 years later. So this was absolutely a team effort. And I represent all those folks that work the investigation. My, uh, it's, that's a funny question because my, when I went into the FBI, I went in wanting to do the cool stuff, the fun stuff. I wanted to work gangs and homicides and drugs and, and violent crime, kicking in doors and doing all that stuff that you see on TV. And I thought the FBI and its infinite wisdom would put me to work doing that with my criminal justice background, with my, my law enforcement background. I knew I was going to Washington field relatively soon after my, my start at Quantico. And then about halfway through, I got a call from my new boss who introduced herself and she said, hey, congratulations, you're coming to the Cuban counterintelligence squad. And I remember distinctly saying, what the hell is that? And she said, I, I can't tell you over the phone. Uh, at Quantico prior to 9-11, we had, we had one day of national security studies. And that, that included terrorism and FISA and counterintelligence and espionage. I mean, that's, that's talk about a condensed training day, one day of national security. So I was quite frankly, not very prepared nor very excited to go work Cubans and work Cuban counterintelligence. It took me probably a good five or six months of working the program to really start to warm up and, and actually enjoy the work that we were doing and the significance of the work that we were doing. Okay, so you get to WFO in the EOD in May of 98, so what, around the holidays of 98 towards the end of the year, yeah? Yeah, I got to I got to watch the field in September of '98, and then probably by uh, early '99 is when I started warming up to my new assignment and actually uh, enjoying it and being proud of working it versus versus kind of disgruntled and and uh, grumpy about my initial assignment, shall we say? Okay. And then, how long after that did the Montez case come across your desk? So, my my fellow. Co-case agent Steve McCoy had a series of we in our the program had a series of what we called unsub investigations, unknown subjects. We knew that the Cubans had penetrated the U.S. government. We got a lot of successes, counterintelligence and intelligence successes that came to us from the IC. Uh, we didn't develop the information; it came from from our partners in the IC, and it. It painted a mosaic, if you will, of a number of penetrations that the Cubans had been successful for in the U.S. government and in the IC. Steve had been working one of these cases for uh, a series of a couple of years, actually. I think it was probably two or three years by that point in time. And it wasn't until the fall of 2000 when DIA learned about our very sensitive need to know espionage investigation of an unknown person. Um, we had a lot of details, a lot of facts, if you will, but but did not have a name. Quite frankly, didn't even have an agency that the penetration was working at. And um, a, a fortuitous, lucky break of, of events, an individual at DIA learned about our very closely held need to know investigation from one of our IC partners and that person actually knew Anamantas and had a eureka moment where he said, that you're describing here to me sounds a lot like Anamantas. I've had my concerns about her for a number of years. DIA went and did some due diligence and then presented to FBI headquarters, probably, probably late fall of 2000, the name. Of, of the person who we, we, we were looking for. And um, we weren't 100% sure and convinced at the time 
Cubans did a fantastic job of denial and deception because they, in, in a lot of the things that we were seeing from the intelligence perspective, which remains really classified, uh, they went to great lengths to disguise her gender. And if you think about it, makes sense. I mean, in, in 1996 through through mid 2000s, the population of the, the workforce was predominantly men, you proportionalize. And if they had referred to her as by her true gender, um, that could have directed our search much more quickly. So we had some initial skepticism that she was in fact the agent that we were looking for, but pretty quickly by, by December of 2000, we, we had a much better feel and, and definitely a much better suspicion that she was the agent. Okay, let me, let me stop you there for a second and for, the sake, for my sake and for the sake of our audience. So you have an unsub, unidentified subject case in the fall of 2000. Yes. Now, was there enough there to justify a full yet unsub case or were you still carrying as a preliminary investigation versus a full investigation? The unsub cases were full investigations. They, they were, were. So based on some credible reporting, but no names attached to them. Correct. Correct. So then, as I understand you, then you brief DIA at a limited ba- on a limited basis. And as part of the give and take with DIA, which I'm made to understand by you was extraordinarily cooperative and supportive in all of this and, and really contributed to the success. Absolutely. So in the in the process of this give and take in in the latter part of 2000 into early 2001, you match up your open investigation with information provided by a DIA employee through DIA security and DIA management. And the combination of the two allows you to be fairly convinced that you've now got a subject to put in the title of your case against the unsub you were previously carrying. Is that right? Yeah, DIA came to us with the name. Um, literally cold called, cold called the FBI and said, hey, we found out about your case and, and here's the name. And we think this is a match. Um, in my mind, so so I get involved in the investigation Christmas of uh, 2000 because I remember distinctly we were at uh, our squad holiday party and <laughs> Steve said, hey, you know, we're just chatting. I, and he said, I, I got a name, name of somebody. And I had a, my father had made me get a ham radio license as a kid. I, I never was happy about it. You know, Morse code and, and um, the, the, there's a lot of theory in that. So I had to learn theory in order to get my ham radio license. And the shortwave radio communication system had, had a certain amount of theory behind it that I was somewhat familiar with. So I said, hey, I kind of have an interest in this. If you don't mind, I'd like to help. He's like, absolutely goes from one person to two people to the entire squad, literally within a matter of, of weeks, to be frank. Um, and that's where I joined the investigation. Um, we had enough for a full field investigation when the name comes to us, but I wanna make it very clear. And, and, and DIA, that's the beginning of where they were hugely a, a positive impact with the investigation, but not them coming to us with the name. I don't know that we're ever having this conversation, to be frank. Right. Um, we had a lot of things we had to do on our end, considering the rule of law and and FISA and all the all the skills and tools that we bring to the table. It wasn't a done deal by any stretch when they delivered the name to us. But in my mind, what I was absolutely most concerned about was making sure we had the right person. Because we did have a degree of skepticism about whether she was the right person. And before we started launching down this very intrusive deep espionage investigation, my goal was to prove that she was the agent first. To con- Without question, she was absolutely the right person. And then if we could catch her in the act through the elements of the espionage charge, that was almost a secondary goal. Obviously, it's a very important part, but make sure we have the right person because I didn't want to be wrong. And I didn't want the FBI to, to, to have any kind of negative criticism about you know, investigating the wrong person. Okay, let me stop you there then. So, and I want to tease out something for our audience. Uh, sounds like inside baseball, but it's really material to the rest of our presentation today. When you opened this up as a full, was it opened up as a counterintelligence operation or as a 65 matter, a counter espionage investigation, both of which give you a, a varying array of authorities and, and as you said, 
one of which the counter espionage side requires a different set of approvals to go forward with investigative techniques. So when you first had the case, did you have it open as a as a Cuban counterintelligence operation full or a Cuban counter espionage investigation full? This was originally opened and throughout, you know, until till it was closed the day after we got rid of all the evidence. It was a, a Cuban espionage investigation. We knew this individual, whoever they were, had access to classified information. And okay, therefore, great. it was paramount that the end goal was 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 likely the identification and potentially putting them in jail for, for violation of the Espionage Act. Okay, so we're in early 2001 then. And as you said, you want to be sure you're not going to bring the full weight of the Bureau's counter-espionage apparatus down on a person if they don't deserve it. And so you had said to us earlier uh, that you wanted to make sure, in fact, that Ana Montes was, in fact, the subject of your former unsub case. So can you walk us through the things you and Steve plan to do early on to provide you with that assurance? So very quickly in November, we, we started the application to ask for the FISA. Uh, and I can tell you, even back in, in 2000, 2001, how, how arduous that FISA process is. It is an incredibly difficult uh, hurdle to get an incredibly important tool and, and one the Bureau needs to have in, in national security investigations, but not an easy and enjoyable process at all. Um, we initially started uh, full surveillance, physical surveillance of her to establish pattern of life and routine and where she shops and, and all the different things that you're looking for in physical surveillance. I'm sure by that point in time, although we didn't direct DIA, they started doing their own insider threat uh, monitoring of her at her workplace to see what she's looking at. And then as time went on, after we, we our FISA was approved in February of 2001, and there's actually an interesting story about that in terms of what the judge said he thought about the case. Um, we then just deployed, you know, a lot of the technical tools that we we have in our arsenal to to wrap ourselves around the subject as much as possible. Um, we didn't have full full visibility on everything. She did a lot of walking in Cleveland Park, going to her gym and going to the food store and, and on the metro. Um, you know, we we we, we ultimately. Uh, when the FISA was approved, we got physical search authority, covert physical search authority. And it, it was in May of 2001 that we did our first covert search of her apartment legally with court authority. And that's where we, we found the laptop computer and the shortwave radio. The laptop computer had, uh, which she thought was deleted, uh, a lot of correspondence between her and the Cubans that became our probable cause for conspiracy to commit espionage. But, um, you know, we, it, the, the case gradually grew. You know, the authorities were added. Um, the judge, the day, of, the day he signed the first warrant, uh, I wasn't in the room, the courtroom, which is a, a, a small room inside the Department of Justice in a skiff. But he said that this was the weakest case he'd ever seen. And I, and I think that's kind of an important message to your audience, because I know that FISA over the past couple of years has got a, uh, you know, perhaps a negative connotation. You know, there is scrutiny that these judges put over the FISAs. And, and we had a very strict mandate from him to come back to him in 90 days, not to have this case bounced around to another judge where it just gets signed off and signed off on. It's really important to recognize DIA, when they gave us the name Anna Montes, they were absolutely convinced that she was the spy. And they were 100% right. But there was a degree of skepticism that we had and the judge had that we had to overcome that was significant. And, and by no stretch was it a done deal when DIA gave us the name Anna Montes. And I think right. that, it's very important to kind of accent and, uh, and highlight because of the, the attention that FISA has received over the past couple of years. Right. So, so two points about that on, on the surveillance side. Yes, I agree with you. I had, I had two sitting at the FISA court at the same time on, on Chinese matters. Uh, and there has been a narrative over the last three or four years that characterizes FISA as a rubber stamp. Not true. The judges are extraordinarily 
discerning, even somewhat punishing when you appear before them, trying to get them to sign off on one of these orders. But you had mentioned earlier, Pete, uh, with regard to your use of physical surveillance. So what we refer to affectionately in the Bureau as the G's, the SSG, the Special Surveillance Group. And if you look at a calendar, um, you and, and our audience will notice at the same time you were applying for resources on the Cuban program, we had the Wenho Lease case going on, and we were sharing resources with the West Coast on that. And we had the case that preceded the Bob Hansen case. So there was a series of cases out of the Russian side of the house that precedes the arrest of Bob Hansen. We had had an open case on another subject for a couple of years, and that was burning up a lot of our physical resources. So as a matter of personal interest on my part, I think of interest to our audience, did you have, even though the Bureau is generally and, and correctly perceived of as having considerable resources at its command, and we do, did you have trouble making the case for resources at the time, or or did you find that the Bureau was willing to share whatever they needed with you at the time? Keeping in mind, I think we also had the, the ghost stories case going on up in New York, which was drawing on considerable resources also. We had most of what we needed when we needed it, except the first night in February 2001, where we knew because of our intelligence community partners that she received a high frequency, a valid high frequency message. We knew this was a message of content. We didn't know what it was, couldn't tell you what it said, but we knew this was not camouflaged. This was a real message. And we had the GDs, the surveillance folks on her, except for that day, because Louis Free, after the arrest of Robert Hansen, pulled all the surveillance folks over to FBI headquarters to thank them personally for their work on the Robert Hansen case, which (laughs) was a great, great leadership thing. And it was like, I couldn't prove that she was actually home that night. We couldn't prove that she was actually home that night because we didn't have surveillance on her. So Murphy made it his first of several appearances in our investigation. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I never heard that. That's a fascinating inside baseball story. Yeah. Yeah. But but for the most part, when we needed it, we had absolute uh, the resources we needed to, to include, you know, on September 12th, 2001. I mean, we had what we needed because of the, the sheer magnitude of, of the priority of this case. OK, so we move into the spring of 2001 then. 9-11's on nobody's radar. Uh, we've just closed out a fairly contentious presidential election. And at that point, when did you think you would bring this case to a resolution? Did you have in your mind a spot on the calendar at which you'd confront her or you're going to run somebody up against her? You must have had an investigative plan to get to the end game here. And in the spring of 2001, again, prior to 9-11, in your mind, what did that time frame look like? So April of 2001, we knew we had the right person. We found a piece of, uh, of, of information using national security letters, another counterintelligence tool that's very valuable. We identified her line of credit. We identified a purchase she made of a computer. And if need be, I could link that back to a piece of classified information that was part of the predicate of our original investigation. And we told the judge that and, and, and said, hey, this is, this, this is the person because of this piece of information and this sales slip that we had. And he he was convinced at that point in time that we had the right person. Very important from a process perspective. Um, when we did that covert search in on, on Memorial Day weekend of 2001, and when our forensic folks uh, pulled off the data, the computer, uh, the narrative, it's almost like a diary. You know, hey, this is what I learned today. This is all classified information. A lot of it was what she wrote at DIA as part of her job as an analyst. I knew that was going to end up in the affidavit of probable cause at some point in time. I knew that met the element of espionage. Um, but this is still early you know, summer of 2001. Although this was an espionage investigation where the prime objective is to put someone in jail, this was managed not in the espionage section at FBI headquarters, but in the counterintelligence, the Cuban program. And, and, and their perspective was if we could also identify the handler, 
that could lead us to other anamontenses, which I don't I don't disagree wasn't a bad thought process. Um, in hindsight, an agent of anamontes's stature is not going to be handled by an individual who's handling other people. It, it just would, it just would not make operational sense because if you take him or her down, you take down Montez, you take down maybe a couple other people. So the goal of identifying the illegal officer, the agent who or the, the handler who was the Cuban here illegally, perhaps wasn't wasn't as as, as focused. But we continued the investigation to try and and, and find that person, and then 9/11 happens. I think that. It's it's important to know, and I know we're going to get to this as we talk about the difference between the FBI before 9-11 and not after 9-11. You know, we had this wall. You know, the Department of Justice had a, had a wall in the counter espionage section, and to a degree, it's still there. What's unique about the FBI is that we have national security tools and, and criminal tools. And and you know, we have agents that work bank robberies that can that work hand in hand with the U.S. Attorney's Office, the local prosecutors as part of a bank robbery, as part of a political corruption case. Us agents on the national security side have have protocols in place in large part because of some things that the FBI did in the past that, that weren't right, um, where there's a wall between the national security and the criminal folks. So Steve and I could not reach out to our local prosecutors without permission and say, hey, we've got this thing. What do you think about this diary and these suspicious phone calls and this classified information? We weren't permitted to do that until after 9-11, when DIA ultimately put the pressure on the FBI to either arrest her or she was going to be fired. So 9-11 didn't have as much of an impact on your deadline as DIA's desire to either help you close your case or to get her out of access and stop her from continuing to do damage to DIA programs. Is that right? Well, so she had no she had no connection with 9-11 from from a, from a an espionage perspective. What was happening, you know, after after President Bush, you know, basically spoke to the world and he said, we're not going to distinguish between a terrorist and a country that harbors terrorism. We're going after both. both. Right. Cuba being a country that was on the State Department's list of states that sponsor terrorism. Um, it was in her mind real that the U.S. government was going to attack Cuba at some point in time. And in fact, she communicated to that to the Cubans while she was under physical surveillance, unbeknownst to us. Um, DIA was was refocusing all of its efforts on going in Afghanistan. <clears throat> and although Anna was a you know a, a Cuban expert, uh, a senior intelligence analyst, DIA basically said we don't care. <laughs> You're going to work Afghanistan, and her assignment was going to be as a battle damage assessment. Our military would hit a target. She was trained to determine whether that target was destroyed or needed to be re, uh, re-hit by the military. And the director of DIA, Admiral Wilson at the time, basically said, that's enough. She's not going to go anywhere near what we're doing in Afghanistan. You've got about a week to, to arrest her. She's fired. And again, kudos to DIA. That was a tremendous value to Steve and I, because to be honest with you, we had a hard time getting FBI headquarters to allow us to go talk to prosecutors. Right. So to that point, let me stop you there and and ask a follow question. So this wasn't being handled out of the C unit. And for our audience, the C unit FBI headquarters used to be kind of one off office, kind of nondescript on the fourth floor there at FBI headquarters uh, that handled all the espionage cases. But this wasn't being handled there. It was actually being handled in the substantive section that handled Cuban counterintelligence matters, and in this case, also the counterespionage case. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, in the global the global section in FBI. Yeah, right. And so you weren't allowed to have contact then with DOJ, with John Dion, or the counterespionage section of DOJ at this point? We were. I know FBI headquarters would routinely, by routinely, maybe once a month or two months, brief John on the on the status of that case. Okay. 
but to get the case agents together with John doesn't happen to uh, until after 9-11. And that was a, that's a moment I'll never forget. I mean, I read about John Dion in books and to be in a meeting with the guy where, you know, if you can convince him, your case is going across the wall. Um, it's, it's definitely a moment I'll, I'll never forget. And that's something we probably like to try and find and put on the screen for our membership too. He's just, he and John Martin who preceded him are just, they've got the 50 years of DOJ's counter espionage caseload in the, you know, in their back pocket, but, but that's for another time. So now we are the day after 9-11, as you said, 9-12 and DIA it wouldn't be fair to characterize it as an ultimatum, but they've told you we need to move this along. We've got bigger fish to fry. And so oh, it, was went, an, it was an ultimatum. <laughs> okay. So DI gives and, and you an ultimatum. A good one. And a good one too. Very and happy to say. Ultimatum. So you and, Steve, you and Steve get together with your supervisor and management at WFO and you decide how quickly can you afford to bring this to a conclusion? And when you're going to do so, do you prepare? Do you, do you moot? an interview of her post her notification and her arrest to try and get a confession. And if you did, can you walk us through how you planned for the end game? We, we had always prepared for an interview um, in the espionage cases, really in, in any investigation that you're running, you should always be in the back of your mind, creating a little folder of things that you can add every once in a while to to prepare that you can just grab in case the last minute, you know, you got to go do an interview of that, a subject interview, you know, because we couldn't talk to prosecutors, if she found out about our investigation, which she actually did. Um, and all of a sudden our surveillance folks follow her up the, uh, the Dulles Greenway going to Dulles airport. And, and we don't know about that. You know, you'd have to be ready to interview her in a heartbeat, depending on the circumstances of the case, which which adds a lot of pressure and definitely um, unique. Um, we had been planning to interview her from from the very beginning. And um, I will say the interview of her was was interesting because, you know, her brother's an FBI agent. Sister works for the FBI. She was a an avid a uh, consumer of law and order with uh, with, you know, that that series. And and to be frank, you know, for 16 years of espionage, I think she herself had planned one day that perhaps she would meet FBI agents about her espionage and therefore psychologically plan for how she would handle that if if it ever happened. So I think we were both really well prepared. I think she was actually better prepared for when she met us than, than we met her. Okay. So the arrest was on or about what, September 21st of 2001. Is that right? Okay. And you knew on that day you were going to bring her into DIA and confront her. So that part of the case is in your control. Right. right. You made a conscious decision to interview her at DIA headquarters. Do I have that right? We did. We did. We wanted we had a she had an IG investigation of what she was the subject of. Not not a big deal. Was I going to get her fired? But she talked to the media without permission. And we used that IG investigation as a ruse to bring her down to uh, a room at DIA so we could then say, hi, this is us. Let's have a conversation. So for most of, and as you're probably aware from our conversations earlier, most of the AFIO membership is not of the Bureau. It's of all elements of the intelligence community. But for the sake of our, our, our viewership, our membership, so walk us through that morning. You decide to, you coordinate with the IG at DIA. You have her brought into a room at DIA ostensibly to follow up on the IG interview. But instead, she's walked through a door and she's introduced to you, and I presume it's Steve, your co-case agent? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, both of us. Can you walk us through that? So they walk her through the door, and then what happens? So so our local prosecutor who we were working with, he, he told us point blank, we don't need a confession. You know, give it a shot, but it's not, it's not critical. She's still going to get arrested. I think we have a very strong case if it goes to trial. So that pressure was off. And at the same time, 
in, in my own professional experience at that point in time, I, I'd been in law enforcement for seven, eight years. I had never known so much about a subject of my investigation. I mean, I had been in her apartment legally multiple times without her knowing. We followed her everywhere. I had a ton of information about her, as did Steve, and, and assumed that we could we could pull a little little thread here and get something. And, and quite frankly, the leverage we used or tried was, look, we know everything about what you've done. You don't have to say a word about you and your espionage. What we don't know is about your brother. We right. don't know about your sister. We don't know about your boyfriend, who, by the way, at the time was a Southcom analyst working on a Cuban target. And we're going to rip their worlds apart and interview everyone who knows them. And 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 the goal was to get her to say something as minimal as leave them alone. They had nothing to do with this. Even that one, two sentences sure. would be would be would be helpful towards a confession. And and she called her bluff because she knew her family wasn't spies. And she said, am I under investigation? And we said, well, yeah, you are. And she said, I need to talk to an attorney. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, lawyered up within 10 minutes. Um, What I will say, Steve is she's at the end of a table, a rectangular table. She's at the end and I'm on one side. Steve's on the other. Steve's on in the lead in, in talking to her. I'm kind of I'm kind of the second chair. On the side of her neck that I'm sitting at, when Steve would say things like, you know, we had a we we have information regarding an M12 penetration, which she would know comes from Cuban intelligence service. She knows exactly her face, this rash exploded on her neck. And and she was sitting literally like this, focused on Steve, and just it, it she couldn't control it. And then it, it kind of went back down and he said one or two more things that were like, oh, they know, they know. And the rash came out again. And I it was all I could do not to say, look, look, look at that, look at the rash. I mean, it was just so dramatic. <laughs> right. And, and it was just like, to, I just would take notes. And uh, and then she she lawyered up. And um, to this day, the next moment is, is in my life history. I, I don't remember if Steve or I said it, but I. Either he handcuffed her or I handcuffed her, or he said, well, that's fine. You're under arrest for conspiracy to commit espionage. Um, and it was is professionally the coolest moment of my career, without a doubt. So even though a little or not enough came of your interview, uh, we had discussed this earlier, I think, by an exchange of emails. Uh, and I think much, most of our audience is familiar with the Behavioral Science Unit down at FBI headquarters, which has been around now for over 40 years, first working criminal matters with serial murderers and then sliding over to the counterintelligence division in the 80s. Did you avail yourself of any of the insights from the Behavioral Science Unit before you went forward? We, we consulted with them. Initially, we, we would re-consult with them as we got more information. Uh, Doug Gregory, who who's a an FBI legend in the counter espionage world, um, was was involved with us. I can't say distinctly that we took anything that they gave us on that day. I have to be honest with you. You know, we're talking ten days after nine eleven. I had a two week old kid at home. My first son, my first child, was two weeks old. Nine eleven was obviously an incredible stressful event. And then we worked two days later, it was like, okay, you're, you're done working at the Pentagon. You now go back to work in Anamantes. So we were exhausted. So I can't say that I pulled something out that Doug Gregory said to us and said, use this, this will be really helpful. But we did, we did rely on them and consult with them and, 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 and benefited from their wisdom and experience, to be honest with you during the course of the investigation. Good. Now, one, one quick question of personal interest. So you had said to us earlier that the FISA court judge had expressed some extreme skepticism about your case and that he wanted you to come back after 90 days. So doing the math here on my fingers, you've gone back to him once at this point since your original FISA order. So 90 days is up before you make the arrest. 
Does the attitude of the judge change so far as you know? Has he become more comfortable with the FISA order? Oh, absolutely. I think we probably had two or three, maybe three renewals at that point in time. I think we could have gone in on an early renewal because we found new, a new email or a new technique that we wanted to deploy. I, I, I was so adamant that we find that one piece of information that corroborates that she's it. And, and I, I do feel very proud that I, I worked so hard to push to just do that old fashioned law enforcement investigation. Right. Not hearing what we get from the FISA, but like just going through credit records and trying to prove this one piece of information. The FBI headquarters went to the judge and said, Your Honor, this sale slip matches this piece of this purchase that we, we prove. And it, 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 it's it's there's no other way it's anyone but Anna Montes. So he he was much more assured. And then the renewals afterwards. And I will say his initial skepticism in large part, I believe, was because we had to put not just the information about her that matches the highly classified information we received from the IC. She also passed a, a polygraph two years after she would have started receiving the high frequency messages. Right. That's I'm going to bring that up. Can you talk about that for our audience a little bit? So she takes a routine polygraph. Some at some point during her career. So can you walk us through that and, and what issues that presented for you investigatively and with with the court? So she was never polygraphed. She started in 1985, was not polygraphed for the first time until 1994. And she tells us that when she went to Cuba initially, and I think the second trip that she went, both trips being clandestine, um, she was definitely afraid of the polygraph. She knew at some point in time she was going to be put on the box. And, and the Cubans were very dismissive of the, they kind of referred to the polygraph as voodoo and that it doesn't work and actually gave her a polygraph test that they claimed she passed. So that polygraph start was, was 1994. We could prove in court that the Cubans started transmitting high frequency messages to an agent beginning in 1992. But two wow. years after she started getting, conceivably got a, getting high frequency messages, she passed a polygraph. Now, DIA didn't have the graphs. All we had was a one-page report that said, you know, NDI, no deception indicated. Here's the date of the exam. Here's the three questions. Um, we couldn't do any quality control, but that provided mitigating information that we had to present to the court because it would water down our argument that she was an agent of foreign power. And I think that partly led to the judge's skepticism, which, sure. was, which, was, not, which was not reasonable. Quite frankly, we weren't 100% convinced that we had the right person. So I, I don't blame the judge, and I appreciate his level of independence and scrutiny. So she takes a regularly scheduled... Just routine. Routine. And she passes it. Uh, but we don't have the charts to review and re-QC the charts once you open your investigation on her. So we report to the judge on the FISA court as being just what it is, a past polygraph NDI, no deception indicator. I think what they call it now is right. no physiological uh, response. Yeah. Okay, so. And a lot of people have asked, like, how do you think she passed the polygraph? You know, it, it, I think she knew what she was doing was illegal. I mean, she look. She, got, she was at her brother's graduation from New Age and training when he graduated from the FBI Academy, the same academy you and I went to. Um, I think morally, she knew she was. She felt she was doing the right thing. So, if morally you're in the right place, I think that would probably mitigate your physiological responses to. Are you committing espionage? I think she could rationalize that and go, "Sure, no, I'm helping my friends." I'm helping, just helping my friends doing good and morally I'm on the right path. So perhaps that led to no deception indicated on, on the, during the polygraph. Well, as you say, and for our audience, uh, the, the list of genuine espionage subjects whom we've arrested and who are in jail today, the list of espionage subjects who have passed their polygraphs is a, is a fairly long and, and distinguished list to include Rick Ames in 89. So so passing a polygraph doesn't necessarily prove a thing, except that you've got 
a longer road to haul with your with your FISA court judge. So nor is failing the polygraph. Nor is failing. Uh, exactly right. Exactly right. So we move into what is really now the end game of your case. You got a newborn child. 9-11 is still drawing resources for the bureau. You've got her arrested. I suspect you arrested her at DIA. Did you lock her up in Maryland or did you lock her up at the Eastern District of Virginia? Uh, D.C. because DIA is located at Bowling, which so so um, oh, okay. from a jurisdiction, it's actually in the district, which was which was unusual because most of these cases um, are prosecuted out of the out of Virginia. We were a little hesitant at perhaps the, the District of Columbia wouldn't be skilled enough in this. And, right. and that 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 was uh, immediately blown away because we had nothing but fantastic support from from uh, the prosecutors that we had. Right. And for our audience, it, it's just it's just a matter of history that the Eastern District of Virginia has caught the largest number of these cases. And so we generally can see that all the assistant U.S. attorneys are great, but some are just more familiar with this kind of case. So to the degree we can get it into the Eastern District of Virginia is usually an advantage. But as you pointed out, your lawyers in the district were fabulous on this. Yeah, absolutely. So now we're into the post-arrest phase. The government's got to decide, do we want to do a deal with her? What will the deal look like? Does she want to go to trial? So in the days and then the weeks after your arrest, can you walk us through that horse trading between let's go to trial and try her in front of a jury of her peers? Or does does she and her lawyer want to strike a deal with the government? And what's the deal that, that she got? So, so trial is always the second best option in these cases. Primarily, you know, a lot can happen in trials. Um, Brian Regan will tell you that. Um, however, and, and the, the other aspect is, you know, when you go to trial, a lot of the information that predicate the investigation could be then discoverable, likely would be discoverable, and that just creates a lot of problems. We never declassified the original source information that started this whole investigation. We didn't need to, thankfully, because we had enough information on our laptop computer that was under her bed. We had enough from her behavior of the physical surveillance folks following her, watching her making pay phone calls after we knew she had a, a valid high frequency message that she received. That was it. And that was enough for a conspiracy charge. So then it became, um, would she, would she plea or would she, or would she go to trial? Um, I remember reading the Washington post. I don't remember what day it was, but there was an article about how she retained, retained Cleo Cacheras as her attorney. Attorney to the spies. And uh, I knew that day that when she hired Plato, who's a very good guy, and I have a high degree of respect for her. And in fact, his brother was a longtime FISA court judge. Um, so a guy making making the thumbs up or thumbs down on the FISA application that the FBI's are bringing is bringing to. I knew when she hired Plato, him having been Aldrich Ames's attorney. Him having been Robert Hansen's attorney, neither of those cases went to trial. I knew we were going to get a plea. It just became a matter of how do we quantify how much time we think she should get versus how much time she thinks she should get. And that became a very subjective process, if you will. Um, my former SAC at the time, Tim Bresney, thought this was a 10 year case. And I told him, um, we're already talking to Plato and we're in the 20s. Um, I insisted on 25 years just because I had to get out of the FBI before she got out of jail. And I, I accomplished that. I, I beat her out. Um, not that there's any comparison to between jail and the FBI, but it was a, a source of personal pride to me. Um, it was interesting because. John Dion had a lot of say in in the plea. And we, we ultimately agreed on 25 years between us and honor and and john i'm sorry it was it was it was secretary chertoff chertoff i think was actually at the dag perhaps at the time and chertoff went to donald rumsfeld secretary rumsfeld and said hey we've agreed to 25 years and his response was and i'm not a part of this conversation so i'm hearing this third hand secretary rumsfeld reaction was over my dead body and 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 Mike Chertoff said, and sometimes in cases like that, we're inclined to send flowers. 
and 25 years was was the plea agreement and uh she's she's due to get out sometime in in 2023 depending on uh, a variety of different factors that that are out of our control okay so i'll back up and i'll go slowly so our editor gets some relief here so pete you had said earlier uh that you weren't in the room, but you heard that Rumsfeld had really been hard over on 25 years for her. And I will tell you at this point, I was already doing temporary duty on the NSC staff. And we had the same problem with Rumsfeld for both Montez and for Bob Hansen. He, he know, or he, he knew or been briefed by his legal team uh, that is a 794 violation, the espionage statute, that these were both capital punishment qualified. And he wanted he wanted more extreme punishment than yeah. just 25 years of jail. And it took a while to convince him. And yeah. as you said, it wasn't so much a case of throwing him flowers as making the case that there's more to learn here. And if we don't have them to talk to anymore, there's no more to learn. So there was a trade-off with the government in terms of any post-plea agreement uh, with regard to debriefings, uh, which ultimately- I think, I think you make up a good point about the death penalty. So we had a death penalty count. Not every espionage case has a death penalty count. There's seven different criteria in the law. We had one of the seven. However, and that one of the seven was on her laptop under her bed um, in, in, in Cleveland Park, Washington, DC. Um, that four sentences, that she wrote up and sent to the Cubans about a about a, a sap that was highly highly classified, absolutely a death penalty count. But if we had went to court, we would have had to have well not even we, the IC member that owned it, uh, would have to declassify it, and and that could not happen. It was still that that usable of a of a source or method. It was still being used elsewhere, and that was an absolute no non-starter. So we couldn't negotiate from, like with Hanson, the death penalty down to life, because we would never declassify that sap that she gave right. up. So we had one, but it was, you know, we had to start with, ultimately, if we went to trial and she's convicted, the most she'll get is life in prison, and then and then kind of work our way down from that. So it's it, negotiating is more of an art and a science, to be frank. Right. Um, but but I was I was ultimately pleased with a 25 year sentence. I thought it was reasonable. She'll be 67 by the time she gets out. And how long did it take you to get to the deal? So you arrest her on the 21st, and how long after that do you cut the deal? Is it weeks? Is it, does it run out to months? I know with Ames, you talked about Plato. It took us, I think, almost two full months to actually get to a plea with him, uh, which ultimately turned out to be successful in terms of the debriefing. But how about uh, Anna? I feel like she entered her plea agreement in, in March of 2002. I feel it was, it was about six months. And I don't think that was anything to do with the negotiations. I, I, but, but I could be wrong. Um, it's our public record that they, she, she pled guilty. Um, I just feel it was probably like four to six months. And then she agreed to debriefings after that? She did. She did. And, you know, the first day we debriefed her, um, the volume of information we learned just in that one session was immeasurable. Uh, she identified, and this is now public record, the woman who recruited her, who um, is under indictment and knows that she's under indictment for espionage. Um, she's an American citizen who at the time um, recruited Ana Montes, introduced her to the Cubans, and then herself went on to commit espionage in addition to just recruiting Ana Montes. Um, uh, we learned that that Anna made our she she made our surveillance. Um, September sixteenth, two thousand one, Anna went to a payphone, and the message she was sending the Cubans was "Danger Perla." Two words. She felt, as a result of the president's speech, that Cuba was in danger of being attacked, and communicated to to a pager through a payphone, "Danger Perla" in code. We had no idea what the message was. It wasn't until we actually talked to Anna and she told us what the message was. And she said, oh, by the way, I made your surveillance. You know, and she had it right. I mean, she wasn't just guessing. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And, and we know, 
she started seeing ghosts and then she's like hey, i saw your guy on a bike and i saw your guy on a skateboard oh, wow. like, but but she absolutely did make our surveillance and i i'm convinced she was probably 90 95% sure she was under investigation however you know, hadn't decided to head to Dallas Airport and take a one-way ticket to Mexico City or wherever to uh, to get out of town because that's that's a final decision. You you make that decision, you're not coming back. Um, you're gone for good. So right. thankfully, she didn't do that and wasn't convinced. But she she made our surveillance. She made our surveillance, unbeknownst to us. Right. So we've asked a lot of our audience here because we've been going for over an hour, but. Uh, Two last questions, and then anything else you'd like to add for the good of the order. Throughout the interview, you've made reference to pagers, Toshiba laptops, cell phones, your own ham radio experience, and apparently her ham radio experience and high-frequency signals. So fair to say, Montez kind of bridges the old-world technology of espionage with analog radio signals and mailings and pagers and encryption on Toshiba laptops. So did you see either during your investigation or subsequent to interviewing her, did you see a shift on the part of the Cubans and how they handled her or did they handle her in the end in the same manner in which they handled her from the beginning? They handled her completely the same. And I think what one of the big takeaways that I took from this is like I said originally, I, I never knew so much about a subject. And there were some key things that I was really wrong about. Number one, the, the sanctity of our investigation, if you will. I assumed the day we arrested her that we hadn't been made, and that was a complete um, uh, it, falsehood. Um, we believed that they would handle her in the same way that the Cubans handled the folks in Miami with, with all of her intelligence being mailed up to accommodation addresses up in the New York area and then having, you know, the, the intelligence officers clear them and get them back to Havana within a 24-hour cycle, if you will. Unbeknownst to us, she met with her Cuban handler in face-to-face -face lunch meetings in Washington, D.C., in broad daylight at a Chinese restaurant every two or three weeks. And that completely blew us away. I mean... They would sit there for two to three hours and just talk like two, two friends would talk having lunch. Um, and she would slide a floppy disk, you know, across the table. And they would actually talk about kind of the content of what's in there using code words for CIA and White House and right. DOD and all that kind of stuff. But actually kind of openly have a conversation about it, which completely shocked us. You know, her... Her being a woman, she was not going to go leave dead drops in the middle of Rock Creek Park, which was only a half mile away. That was not she was not going to put herself in harm's way from a physical safety perspective. Uh, she preferred to meet in public with her handler and just have a casual lunch. Um, and I think that really shocked us and surprised us and opened our minds to maybe not being so rigid. In, in how a service will handle this person just because that's the way they handle a different person. Right. I think it opened our minds to be more open-minded. Okay, so the last two questions um, at the very personal, intimate level. So in her mind, she had, she had identified our surveillance. When you interviewed her, did you ask her at that point, did you think of leaving? Or at that point, did you decide you were just going to ride it out? So I'd be curious to know if she was convinced she had finally seen surveillance, in her mind was it time to get out? And I ask because, as you'll recall, at the same time we've arrested Hansen, and in Hansen's last note to the Russians, he says they're on to me, and yet he continues, he yeah. continues to make a meet, even though he's telling the Russians, I think there's a case on me. So wow. can you walk wow. us through that mentality of somebody that's been in it so long that in, there's more pain in leaving than there is in writing it out? I think that in, I'm sure we did ask her if she considered leaving. And I, I honestly, it's been 20 years, so I'm kind of I'm kind of gray on that. I've always looked at it from the perspective of, you know, I think she was 90 for 95 percent convinced that she was under investigation. I think there was still a tad of right. 
doubt. And again, I mean, she had, we found, you know, we executed a criminal search warrant of her apartment. We found four $100 bills stuffed in a travel bag with maps of cities from around the world. I mean, clearly it was a, it was a, a getaway bag. Right. Like, easily could have walked up to Dulles with $400 cash and, and bought a ticket, one-way ticket to Mexico City or wherever. Um, I just don't think that she was 100% convinced. And I, and I think it's not like she could leave the country and then two months later call her brother Tito <laughs> and say, hey, any of your colleagues looking for me? Uh, you know, this was it. She would have made that final decision and there would be no turning back. So right. I just don't think in her, in, in her heart of hearts she was totally convinced. I also think that if if her espionage resulted in her arrest, to in her mind that was that was part of a price that she was willing to pay to pay right to help the Cubans against this this evil country that that is the United States and uh, I'm I'm kind of speaking in, in in what I think she would say right. So you brought it up, and I'll make it my final question, unless you have anything else to add or when you have anything else to add. So you brought up Tito, and earlier, a few minutes ago, you referenced the Miami case, but it might be that many in our, our audience aren't familiar with the Miami case. So at the same, well, at nearly the same time, in fact, I saw when I reviewed Steve McCoy's affidavit for a search warrant, he actually references Hernandez from the Red Wasp investigation down in Miami. So clearly, if only because they're both Cuban matters, they have some connection. I suspect there was probably more of a connection than just being run by the Cuban services. And you brought Tito into it. So as a capstone question for the interview and for our audience, can you can you briefly tell our audience what the Red Wasp case was down in Miami and what impact, if any, it had on your case? Huge impact. September of 98, just as soon as I'm getting to Washington Field after graduating from Quantico, FBI Miami made a a significant, they arrested five people, uh, some Cuban illegals and some Cuban agents, they're now known as the the Miami Five, um, for committing espionage and targeting the Cuban-American community, as well as uh, several military bases down there. It was a huge case for the Cuban program. Ironically, Anna's sister, Lucy, who's an absolute sweetheart and their entire family is a fantastic family. I, I, I remain friends with Lucy. I haven't talked to Tito in a long time. Um, both are retired from the FBI, but Lucy was a translator in our Miami office and she literally worked the wire of the Miami case and her sister never, never knew. Um, you know, that was a big case for the program. It definitely led to successes that helped us identify Montez. Um, but we definitely got pigeonholed in terms of, well, this is how they handled the folks in Miami. This is how they would handle Montez. And that was, that was, uh, closed minded on our part, but you know, her family is a fantastic family. I, I honestly believe if they had known what she was doing, I think they would have turned her in. And I have no doubt about that whatsoever. And, and, and quite frankly, the intelligence that we saw showed that, that Montez was a sole contributor. Unlike, you know, Kendall Myers, where we knew that there was there was two people working together. Right. Or we're either looking at a husband and wife team or, or, or something of that that nature. Montez was a sole contributor and, and the Cubans didn't need Tito and Lucy. They had a gold mine in Anna Montez where she was and her, her willingness to provide this intelligence and commit espionage for, for free. Right. And just do it for ideological reasons. And I think that's uh, that's significant. But Pete, just for my sake, and I I suspect for the audience, I want to be clear. So Lucy, almost three years prior to the arrest of her sister, Anna, is working on a closely held case, espionage case run by the Cubans down in Miami. Mm -hmm. And Lucy says nothing about it to her sister at DIA. Nope. Nope. I don't know. So that's most startling and, and wonderfully reassuring, I think, not just for me, but for anybody listening. That's a... That's a fabulous story. Yep. When the family got together, they talked family stuff. They didn't talk work. Right. And, and Anna was very compartmented in how she first professionally and, and personal life, very compartmented, which, to be honest, many of us in the IC and, and FBI tend to be very compartmented. I mean, we don't go to cocktail parties talking about 
cases. You know, the job, which right. which is a stressor. Let's be honest. That's that's a hard part of what we do is 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 not talking about what we do and not being able to talk about what we do to to even our families to a large degree. Right. Well, Pete, you've been fantastic. It's it's an engaging story uh, with some almost unique vectors to it that I, I can't imagine other cases would give us. I appreciate the time you've shared with us and our membership. Before we close it out, I just I want to ask the classic time-worn interview question. Is there anything I didn't ask that you hoped I would ask or you expected me to ask? Understanding you're not a subject except of this interview. <laughs> he's, he's never said that before, right? <laughs> um, There's only three people know, that know about our relationship. You know, you know, I'm just, I'm really, you know, I look back, we're on the, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of her arrest. And I, I can't think of the birth of my first child, 9-11 and her arrest without, I can't think about one without all three of these things intermixed. I'm just super proud that, that this team sport that we engaged with, with not just with the FBI, but with, with our, the interagency, you know, really accomplish something that is, is I pinch myself that I was a part of this, a small part uh, of a team that really did something really good. I mean, we got to punch Fidel Castro in the nose and I don't care what I wanted to do, or what I thought I wanted to do when I got in the FBI, no way would I have ever thought that I would have been able to have helped punch Fidel Castro in the nose sitting as a cop in Coatesville, Pennsylvania with my graduate book highlighting, you know, criminological theory, wanting to work violent crime at some point in time. And I'm just really honored to represent all the folks that that work this to which they deserve just as much credit as anyone else. Great. Well said. And so with that, again, on behalf of the AFIO Board of Directors and our membership, I just want to thank you for making this time available to us. Uh, and with that, uh, we'll go ahead and close it out, Jim. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate it. Well, this has been a fascinating uh, retelling of a landmark counter-espionage case. Uh, I want to thank Peter Lapp and John Kudraki. Uh It's been a fascinating session. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you.